Showtime, boys. This is what it's all about. Yes, indeed, it is another episode of the Stutes Cast. I appreciate you tuning in. Thank you, as always. Please don't forget to follow me on Twitter, at Cody underscore Stutes, if you don't already. Some of the stuff we've talked about in the Stutes Cast, you got a little bit of a preview on Twitter if you were following along. We will not be talking about Anthony Weaver's defense in a negative light today. We will be talking about the Texans' offense in a negative light. We want to get into that. The most unacceptable thing from Sunday's loss to the Steelers happened before the game even got started. And four downs in the NFL on four very important observations I made over the weekend. So let's get going. This Texans offense is just dreadful to watch right now. Everything looks difficult for Deshaun Watson. Nothing really looks easy. The running back situation is a huge failure. The quarterback play overall has regressed. It looks inconsistent. And the offensive line, which was supposed to be a strength, is somehow a huge weakness. Let's start with the rushing attack. I tweeted about this. You can follow me on Twitter at Cody underscore Stutes. I tweeted about this that David Johnson has had more than half of his carries this season go for two yards or less. Okay? 35 carries, 18 of them for two yards or less. Now that's not all on David Johnson. And Bill O'Brien said that David Johnson couldn't have gotten any better. So there's clearly something wrong with the way they're approaching the offense. Bill O'Brien said that they need to change some things up in the scheme, and I would think that, yeah, something's definitely got to change in this scheme. Last year, Carlos Hyde could rattle off 100-yard games with this same offensive line when they had barely played together, when Titus Howard was a rookie and Max Sharping was a rookie and Laramie Tunsil had no training camp with this team. Now, maybe, just maybe, Carlos Hyde was better suited to run between the tackles, unlike, I don't know, David Johnson, who's never been a run-between-the-tackles running back. But that's a conversation for another time, considering this team had Carlos Hyde, tried to bring him back, and then somehow, someway, decided to trade one of the best wide receivers in football for a running back that couldn't run between the tackles, but they again tried to make a between-the-tackles runner. Sound familiar? It, uh, It is familiar, because Lamar Miller went through the same thing with this team. Okay, Bill O'Brien loves to take Ferraris off-roading. That's what I like to say about how he used Lamar Miller when Lamar Miller was here, and that's how he's using David Johnson. He likes to take Ferraris off-roading. It's the wrong approach. He has the wrong running back. Carlos Hyde was successful because Carlos Hyde was the type of running back that he has long needed in Houston, but somehow, someway, Bill O'Brien could not find another Carlos Hyde or even keep Carlos Hyde in the building. So, Bill O'Brien can say that it's not David Johnson. He can blame the scheme, the offensive line. It's a combination of all of it and the rushing attack, which they are committed to, okay, which they are so weirdly committed to because coming out of halftime, the first two plays were sticking the ball in David Johnson's belly. Balance doesn't matter. You think the Seahawks are worrying about how much they're throwing the rock versus how much they're running it? No, they're letting one of the best quarterbacks in football dial it up and throw it deep to DK Metcalf and Tyler Lockett. That's what this Texans offense was supposed to do. That's what this Texans offense was supposed to look like. They were supposed to be bombing it to Will Fuller and Brandon Cooks and Kenny Stills. And when those guys are covered, they're supposed to be dumping it off to David Johnson, Duke Johnson, and the tight ends. Instead, they're sticking it in David Johnson's belly for two-yard gains and one-yard losses. Okay, And on top of that, somehow, someway, this quarterback play overall looks worse than when Deshaun Watson took no 
training camp snaps as the starter, and they were committed to Tom Savage, and then they threw Deshaun Watson in there as a rookie, and he looked pretty good. It looks uh, worse than when Deshaun Watson didn't have a real offseason because he had to recover from an ACL injury, but he still looked pretty good that season, and it looks worse than last year. And that is just not okay from this offense. So now I ask you, what's totally different from last year to this year? Well, there's three things. Obviously, DeAndre Hopkins isn't here, and we're going to bang that drum until the cows come home because it was a bad move, and it's indefensible on every single level. There's no defense for it, okay? So obviously the Hopkins situation is bad, but let's just pretend that it's not all DeAndre Hopkins not being here. Let's just go with that for a second. What is wholly and totally different from last year to this year? Well, obviously the running back is new. Okay, the starting running backs now David Johnson instead of Carlos Hyde. They can't run the football. That is a huge difference because nobody respects this rushing attack right now. And why would you? David Johnson has never been successful between the tackles. At least Carlos Hyde had measures and mediums of success running between the tackles prior to arriving in Houston. Okay, David Johnson did not have that. David Johnson's success was predicated on his duality as a pass catcher and and a guy that could get to the edge and beat your linebackers to the edge. And you know what? David Johnson's had a couple of nice runs, okay? Ask the Kansas City Chiefs about him. All right, He had a couple of nice runs against them, and some of those were between the tackles. But to consistently just pound the rock with David Johnson between the tackles, that has clearly hindered this offense. And the main thing that's different is they have a new guy on the headset talking to Deshaun Watson, Tim Kelly. Tim Kelly is totally different from Bill O'Brien, although it is similar, but just because it's similar doesn't mean it's as good. Just because Tim Kelly is a Bill O'Brien disciple doesn't mean that he brings to Deshaun Watson in this offense the same level that Bill O'Brien brought last year. Is it possible that Bill O'Brien takes over play calling duties? I would say that not only is it possible, I think it's likely. I don't think Tim Kelly's even going to get the the luxury of calling plays all year like George Godsey did before Bill O'Brien maybe took the plays away, maybe took them, you know, maybe was helping George Godsey, whatever. At least George Godsey had an excuse. I mean, the quarterback situation when Godsey was doing it was a disaster. Tim Kelly, what's Tim Kelly's excuse? He's got Deshaun Watson in his fourth year with no worry about his future thanks to the big contract. He's got three speed-wide receivers. He's got a veteran slot receiver. He's got two tight ends that have been around this team. Before Duke Johnson's injury, he had two running backs that catch the ball out of the backfield. I mean, maybe the excuse is, oh, well, we don't have the right running back, but Tim Kelly's a part of these conversations, I would assume, when they talk about this offense, or maybe he's not, and maybe he is a part of the conversations and just thinks the same way that Bill O'Brien does, which is certainly a possibility. Now, I told you earlier, we will have no discussion about how Anthony Weaver's defense has not been good enough, and we're not going to have that discussion. You know why? Because I want to look this up. I want to look this up. Through the first three games of last year, the Texans gave up 385.6 yards per game. Now, that was Drew Brees, Gardner Minshew in his very first start, and Phillip Rivers in the Chargers. 385.67 yards per game in their first three games last year. Do you know how many yards per game they've given up in their first three games this year? 
about 387.67 yards per game. Just two yards per game more through the first two games, or first three games this year, and they went against Patrick Mahomes, Lamar Jackson, and Ben Roethlisberger. They went against three against three really talented offenses, and they're only two yards per game worse than the team was last year. And they're doing that with significantly less talent than what they had on the field to start 2019 last year. The offense is dreadful. It's unacceptable. And we are to the point where potentially the Texans have to think about doing something that they had to do in 2017 when Deshaun Watson took over. Take everything that they worked on in training camp and the first week leading up into the season, and then they just sort of threw it out the window when Deshaun Watson took over. Do they have to do that again? What else can they try? There's no help on the way for this offense. It is what it is on offense. They're not signing a big-time offensive player to change the landscape of this team, to change the vibe and the feel of this team. There's nobody they can add to this offense that changes anything. So the only people that can fix it, the only people that can fix it are the people on the headsets and the people that decide what is on the play sheet each week. And they have to do a better job. Bill O'Brien oftentimes has said, I got to coach better. And sometimes he was covering for his players. Now he's not covering for anybody. He's got to coach better. His hand-picked offensive coordinator's got to coordinate better. And his hand-picked offensive line coach has to coach up the same offensive line that had 100-yard games for Carlos Hyde last year, but somehow, some way, can't block for David Johnson and forces him to have 18 of his 35 carries through three games go for two yards or less. We just talked about how the offense was unacceptable on Sunday, and The defense may have been unacceptable to some of you, not to me, but some of you may have thought that the defensive performance was unacceptable against the Steelers as well. I'm here to tell you that the most unacceptable thing that occurred for the Houston Texans on Sunday happened before kickoff, and it's when Bill O'Brien turned in the Houston Texans inactives for Sunday's game. Two of those names, it is unacceptable in 2020 with this team and the situation that they are in to have two of these names on the inactive list. That's defensive lineman and second-round pick Ross Blacklock and linebacker and third-round pick Jonathan Grenard. It is unacceptable for both of those players to be healthy scratches on game day. Let's start with Blacklock. Blacklock is the key piece of of the DeAndre Hopkins trade. It is the element of the DeAndre Hopkins trade that you garnered the most value in the return for DeAndre Hopkins. It was the 40th overall selection in the 2020 NFL Draft. The Texans promptly used that on Ross Blacklock, a defensive lineman who primarily played defensive tackle at TCU. Now, that was important because the Houston Texans had watched the departure of DJ Reader happen in free agency. They decided not to pay him. They Felt like they couldn't afford him, although basically the money they spent on Whitney Merciless they probably could have used on DJ Reader. They decided they didn't want to do that. They didn't do that. They didn't sign DJ Reader to an extension prior to the season last year. That was reserved for Nick Martin, even though he didn't deserve it. But Ross Blacklock, it was thought, okay, 40th overall selection. 
defensive lineman. He would be a part of the rotation and maybe work his way into the starter role within the next two or three years. I did not have the expectation that Ross Blacklock was going to come in and just take over for DJ Reader and provide the same level of success. I didn't have that expectation. Okay, but the expectation set by the actions of Bill O'Brien and Jack Easterby was that Ross Blacklock was going to be an important player for this team. And then Ross Blacklock was inactive on Sunday. Don't you think that the defensive line rotation could have used, I don't know, a 300-pound second-round selection that could have at least spelled some of those defensive linemen that looked pretty gassed there in the late third and fourth quarter when the Steelers were running the ball down the Texans' throats? Ross Blacklock could have helped them. Okay, now the only defensible thing that could keep Ross Blacklock inactive is if Bill O'Brien had suspended Ross Blacklock for getting kicked out of a game last week. Now, maybe it was immature and maybe Ross Blacklock had a bad week, but if that's the case, say it. You can't just lean on, we did what was in the best interest of the team. Because in the best interest of the team, when Kiki QT is active and doesn't play a snap, the best interest of the team was to have Ross Blacklock active as at least an option to be on the field. So if he's a healthy scratch, okay, if Ross Blacklock is healthy, he can physically play. There's no ailment keeping him from playing but the Texans decide not to play him, is he bad? I mean, there's maybe an argument to be made that he's bad, and uh, you know, three weeks into the regular season, Bill O'Brien, as the general manager, knows that his hand-picked player at 40th overall, the player that's supposed to be the major return from the DeAndre Hopkins trade, maybe Bill O'Brien knows three weeks in that Ross Blacklock isn't the guy. And that's made even worse by the fact that one pick after that, Jonathan Taylor went and he's crushing it for the Colts. He's their starting running back. He can run between the tackles, unlike the Texans' starting running back, David Johnson. Or maybe it's LaVisca Chenault, who's been a nice wide receiver slash gadget weapon on offense for the Jaguars. Now, maybe you don't want to focus on the offense with with that 40th overall selection. Well, how about Antoine Winfield? From Houston, by the way, you know, from the Woodlands. How about Antron Winfield, who's kicking tail for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers to the point where Bruce Arians said he reminds him of Tyron Matthew. Chase Claypool went eight picks after Ross Blacklock, or excuse me, nine picks after Ross Blacklock. Now, again, maybe you don't want to do offense, but Claypool's certainly kicking butt. He's looked better on the field than, I don't know, Kenny Stills. Okay. Trevon Diggs is a rookie second-round corner, 51st overall by the Cowboys. Don't tell Lonnie Johnson that second-round rookies can start as rookies. How about A.J. Epinesa? Okay, the Iowa defensive lineman. He had a sack on Jared Goff on Sunday. How many sacks does Ross Blacklock have? Zero. How many games played does Ross Blacklock have? Two. How many does Epinesa have? Three. All right, already a little bit better. Jeremy Chin, Daniel Jeremiah, said that Jeremy Chin's the best player on the Panthers' defense. He was 64th overall, plays safety. Think the Texans could use some safety help considering they're working out Earl Thomas, maybe going to sign him, considering that they were playing A.J. Moore at safety, even though A.J. Moore had played, you know, just 20 more defensive snaps in the National Football League than you or I. So maybe Bill O'Ryan blew it with the second round pick. 
But he's also been telling us time and time again that rookies, it's tough for them to contribute. Well, then how come I just named seven rookies that are contributing at an extremely high level? So there's really not a defense unless they were going to say Blacklock was suspended. There's really not a defense for Ross Blacklock not being active on Sunday. They had a player who is a player that was active that did not play at all, did not get any snaps according to the box score, and that's Kiki QT. Okay, so Blacklock easily could have been active there. Or he's just not very good. Either way, they should have had that player available for the defense, or Bill O'Brien has totally blown the pick and he's admitting defeat three games into the season. I hope it's the former and not the latter. Because if it's the former and it was just trying to send a message and they don't want to embarrass Blacklock and they don't want to talk about it, I could maybe get on board with it, even though I don't really see many teams suspending a guy the week after he gets kicked out of a game. I mean, did Rashawn Evans miss a game for the Titans after he punched somebody and got ejected? I don't think he did. And at least you could understand it from a rookie, a veteran, you would think not. But, you know, hey, Mike Vrabel's a better head coach than Bill O'Brien, so he probably knows what he's doing. The other element of this is John Grenard's been inactive, and John Grenard's been healthy for a couple of weeks. Now, remember when Jonathan Grenard was picked by this team, Bill O'Brien was caught on camera on the draft coverage very upset, very animated, and I'm projecting, because I don't know exactly, but he was yelling at his phone, and O'Brien just brushed it off as, uh, you know, having some fun with the boys in the the post-draft press conference for that. But John McClain reported that a trade fell through, and that the, I guess it was the Lions were trying to trade for that pick. So Bill O'Brien maybe doesn't even want Jonathan Grenard, which is weird on a couple of levels. One, how do you botch a trade when it seems like it was getting ready to go through? And two, how do you not have a player ready to get picked? And three, when you do pick the guy, you actually picked a guy that seems like he could be pretty useful. Jonathan Grenard led the SEC in sacks last year. Think about how weak this Texans pass rush has looked. Jonathan Grenard led the SEC, the best conference in college football. He led it in sacks last year. And somehow the Texans can't find a way to get Jonathan Grenard on the football field when he's healthy. They deemed him not useful on game day. This is not a situation where Bill O'Brien's trying to send a message that he didn't want this player drafted. He didn't want this draft pick. He doesn't want to play this guy. He doesn't think he's any good. He made the selection. He picked the player. They have gotten nothing out of this draft class. And when you think about the investment that they made in this draft class, when you see multiple, throughout the course of football, multiple second-round picks succeed at the wide receiver position. And you understand that they traded one of their second-round picks for Brandon Cooks. The other one was used on a player who has two stats, one tackle, one ejection, and he was inactive on game day. And then they used their second pick in this draft on a player that has been healthy, and not playing, despite leading the best conference in college football in sacks. It is just mind-boggling that Bill O'Brien has somehow, someway selected two players that are not one of the 46 best players on this team on game day.
That is so baffling. And Aaron Reese reported this this week. It's the first time in franchise history nobody from the rookie draft class competed on offense or defense. That is horrible. You cannot point to a ton of injuries in this draft class. The first two picks, the first two selections whose names you turned in were healthy. And somehow, some way, the player who was the key player in the DeAndre Hopkins trade and the player who was the best quarterback pass rusher as far as getting sacks in the best conference in college football were not one of the 46 best players on your game day roster. That's unacceptable on every level from the general manager slash head coach. It's unacceptable if those guys lack the talent to play on game day when they are healthy. And it's unacceptable that when they are healthy, that they are not a part of this defense when the defense lacks the overall talent that it has had in the past couple of years. The offense, unacceptable. The defense, unacceptable to some. But the most unacceptable thing for the Texans in Pittsburgh against the Steelers happened when they turned in the inactives and Ross Blacklock and Jonathan Grenard's names were on that list. Four downs on four things that really jumped off the page in week three of the 2020 NFL season. We start with where else Russell Wilson. Look, if you didn't know Russell Wilson was capable of this, you just haven't been paying attention. I mean, we're only, what, two seasons, three seasons removed from when he led the National Football League in touchdowns. We've known that he can sling it all over the place. We know he's mobile enough to extend plays. He can hurt you with his legs to a small extent as well, certainly not to the level like a Lamar can or Josh Allen can, but Russ has got enough movement. He is very good. He's a future Hall of Famer. He's capable of this. I thought he was capable of this a few years ago because CBS Sports came to me when I was hosting radio in Houston, and they said, hey, we want one of your guys to participate in our preseason survey who's going to be the MVP. I think everybody picked Aaron Rodgers. Um, one guy threw out like a you know a crazy name, and then I picked Russell Wilson. I, I, I've, I've thought that Russell Wilson's going to win the MVP for a few couple of years now. All right, But my question about this season so far through the first three weeks is, Why now to let Russell Wilson just throw it a bunch? Did Pete Carroll know that his defense wasn't any good? Did Pete Carroll know that he was going to have to throw the ball more? This isn't just Russ talking about how he wants to be Mr. Unlimited. And this isn't about, you know, uh, Schottenheimer finally looking at Twitter and seeing let Russ cook. Okay. Did Pete Carroll know that this defense wasn't going to be any good because it feels that way. It feels like Pete Carroll knew the Seahawks defense wasn't going to be any good. And he knew that his offense was going to have to throw the ball more and play in these shootout games and win these shootout games. It felt like Carroll saw this coming and he told the offensive staff, throw the rock more because If Carroll has always known Russ is capable of this, because he has to know. If we know, he has to know that Russ can do this. Then why hasn't he done this the past couple of years? Now, maybe you want to say, oh, well, he hasn't totally had the talent, the ability to do that. But you look at what Russ has had. He's had Tyler Lockett for a few years now. DK Metcalf was good as a rookie last year. And look, they let Russ sling it around the yard a little bit last year, but not nearly to this level. Okay? Sidebar. 
how good are Lockett and Metcalf? Are they the best one-two punch in football? Now, maybe I'm getting ahead of myself, but those guys are really good. Also, how are both of those guys second-rounders? I'm not saying that Lockett should have been a first-rounder, but I think he went in the middle of the round. He should have easily been a late-in-the-first guy. And then DK Metcalf, I've always thought DK Metcalf would have, was a first-round guy. I didn't care about how he could go sideways. I knew that he could go straight past everybody, and you know what he does every week? He just goes straight past everybody. Maybe we hold on to the football until we get in the end zone DK next time so we actually get that score, okay, and we don't make it, you know, you know, a little, little tight there at the end for our team, okay? But overall, it feels like Pete Carroll knew that this defense was going to be bad and his offense was going to be or need to be damn near the best offense in football or certainly one of the best offenses in football for this team to go anywhere. By the way, by the way, Russ was incredible through six weeks last year. Through six weeks last season, Russell Wilson had 15 touchdowns, no interceptions, and he had more rushing touchdowns than Lamar Jackson. Through six weeks last year, if you forgot, Russell Wilson was the best quarterback in football through six weeks last year. And then in the final 10 games, he only threw, I think it was... uh, 17 touchdowns in the final 10 games, which is certainly not as impressive as uh, 15 in the first six, I believe, is what he had. So Russ was the best quarterback in football through six weeks last year. He had a better record than Lamar Jackson and the Ravens. He had more passing touchdowns than Lamar Jackson. He had more rushing touchdowns than Lamar Jackson. So let's cool it with the MVP discussion three weeks in because Russ would have won it six weeks in last year, and then Lamar ran away and got cooking. Oh, by the way, Patrick Mahomes, still very good. Aaron Rodgers, still very good. Josh Allen, eh, maybe. It's kind of weird. It's kind of fun. Um, you know, maybe he's in the conversation too. But and, and you know what? As good as Russell Wilson is at his job, nobody in the National Football League is as good at their job as Aaron Donald is at his job right now. It is a legendary run that Aaron Donald's on right now. Let me can the MVP discussion, okay, for three weeks in what's about to be the weirdest season of NFL football ever. All right, so throw that away. Save that for when you finally run out of stuff to talk about. That's not where we are right now. Second down this week is Doug Peterson and the Eagles tying the Cincinnati Bengals. Ultimately, a tie is not the worst thing in the world. It's actually way better than a loss when you think about how tight the NFC East is going to be when this is all said and done. So a tie is not the worst thing in the world for the Eagles. Now, I'm not mad because I think Doug Peterson played for the tie. I don't think that's what he did. I think where you can be highly critical of Doug Peterson in this situation is he played for the maximum field goal distance that his kicker was able to hit. Okay? They got the ball at the Philadelphia 45-yard line with, I think, a minute 36 left in overtime. And the TV people were putting Jake Elliott's um, field goal line to get to at the 44-yard line, 43-yard line, I think, of Cincinnati's side. 59-yard kick, you know, 60-yard kick. That was the maximum field goal distance that they were wanting to get Jake Elliott to. That's like the the, the best case scenario, or the worst case scenario in him actually attempting the kick was that. 
And they started with a dump off to Miles Sanders for seven yards. He runs out of bounds. Clock stops. It's like, okay. By the way, they have no timeouts. No timeouts, the Eagles. Then this is what the Eagles do. They run the football, trying to get the first down. They don't get it. There's like a four-minute review where somehow, some way, Doug Peterson's genius in this four minutes, if the call gets overturned and it's third and one, is to run the football. And that's what they do. And they run the football, and then the Cincinnati Bengals bail them out with a timeout. The Bengals bailed out the Eagles with a timeout after they ran the football in third and one. So the clock stops. And so what do they do when they are still not in easy make field goal range? Like toughest field goal you feel comfortable with this guy taking. That is roughly where they are. And they run the football with no timeouts. And then they get back in the huddle and they go to throw the ball. And Carson Wentz scrambles with the football. Again, the clock is not stopping. So then they go no huddle, and Carson Wentz throws an incomplete pass. So when you had four, almost five minutes while that review was going on, Doug Peterson decided, hey, let's run the football. Let's not tell Carson to make sure that he gets the ball out of bounds or makes sure it's an incomplete so that the clock will keep going. And then... If the clock is still going, let's go ahead and no huddle where if we get sacked or our guy catches the ball inbounds, we have less than 19 seconds on the clock to get out there, get the field goal unit out there, get lined up and kick what is a maximum makeable field goal distance for our kicker. Doug Peterson didn't play for the tie. If he was playing for the tie... That would have actually made a little bit of sense in the long run and the grand scheme of things. Instead, Doug Peterson was playing for a situation that is actually less favorable to his team than playing for the tie. He was playing for a 58 to 60 yard field goal. And that is silly. That is likely to be missed. And that is likely to give Joe Burrow an opportunity to chunk it down the field and maybe get a pass interference, which we saw with the Chargers last season, set them up for field goal in, I think it was in the fourth quarter, might have been overtime. They had a crappy pass interference calls. We've seen some pass interference calls that have been bad through the first couple weeks. It sets the Bengals up for an opportunity. Instead of setting up for that max field goal, max distance field goal, they got a false start. They couldn't even attempt it. They punted it, and then they tied the football game. At least if they were playing for the tie, they would have tried to make Cincinnati, it would have tried to make it impossible for Cincinnati to score. They weren't playing for the tie. Doug Peterson was playing for the maximum makeable field goal for his kicker, and that's losing football, okay? You got Carson Wentz. You paid the guy $150 million guaranteed. Throw the rock. I don't care if it's J.J. Arcega-Whiteside and Greg Ward out there. All right? Throw the rock. Let him try to move the ball and get your kicker into a worthwhile field goal instead of the maximum distance that you feel comfortable him even attempting a field goal. 
Third down from week three is Kyle Shanahan and what the 49ers did to the New York football Giants. Now, it's not super impressive because, again, it's the Giants. They're a horrible organization right now. They're completely and totally talentless. All right? There's just not a ton of talent on that team. But what Kyle Shanahan did, going in there taking Nick Mullins and Brandon Ayuk is basically his only uh, skill position players that are worth a hoot, and not having a punt at all is super impressive. And not only that, but Mullins, after a week to build into it, looked a lot like the Nick Mullins that played a couple of years ago for Shanahan and looked pretty good doing so when Shanahan invested the time. And ultimately, this is something that I've thought for a couple of years now, and it's very true that there is nobody in the National Football League that I would want coaching my quarterback more than Kyle Shanahan. I believe he is the best offensive mind in the National Football League when it comes to individual quarterbacks. I believe Kyle Shanahan can take most quarterbacks who are at a disadvantage overall, physically, mentally, just their overall ability as a quarterback. I think he can take most quarterbacks and win a football game with that guy as his backup. And I think that is a true hallmark of an incredible coach. Now, does he coach the best offense in football? No, that's Andy Reid. All right. Is he the best play designer? No, that's probably Andy Reid. That's other guys. Is he the you know most innovative? No, it's McVay, whatever. Shanahan coaches quarterbacks better than anybody else in the National Football League. And when you think about that thought, Jimmy Garoppolo comes back, maybe whatever season Garoppolo has, the idea that Shanahan could do Garoppolo in 2021 or Mullins in 2021 or trade for somebody else's quarterback in 2021, he's not pot committed to anybody, especially if the rest of that team keeps raising its level. They got a decent offensive line. You know, next year, Ayuk will be in his second year. Debo will be in his third year. George Kittle will be incredible. The defense comes back after some of those injuries. Like if the rest of that team keeps going up, 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 and Shanahan can take something that is typically very expensive, which is franchise quarterback, and get that level of production out of something that is not typically or that is not actually that expensive, the 49ers will be around for a very long time despite not having one of the 12 or 14 or 16 best quarterbacks in football. They'll always be a tough out. And if Nick Mullins has to go this week, they're going to be a tough out. And if Nick Mullins has to go for two or three more weeks, they're going to be a tough out. And oh, by the way, if they get Jimmy Garoppolo and George Kittle back, they're going to be an even tougher out because Shanahan's going to have most of his offense together that he thought he might have when this season was going to get started. And then Mostert comes back, and then all of a sudden, that 49ers offense that was so dangerous on the ground now has a lot more weapons through the air. And now has Shanahan, who is one of the best in the game, running the show there. The 49ers, despite the record, despite the way it's looked, and despite the injuries, still very dangerous. Still very dangerous. Now, they're the best team in the NFC West. Unfortunately, they're not. That is the LA Rams. We'll talk about them another time. 
Fourth down, and this one's going to be a quick one because it's just something to pay attention to. It's just something to watch, and I haven't dove deep into exactly why this is the reason, but it is a very interesting aspect about a team that a lot of people have thought is a really good team through three weeks and could be something very impressive in the long term because it looks like they've taken the next step on offense. But unfortunately for them, they've taken a couple of steps back on defense. That's the Buffalo Bills. Josh Allen, fantastic. Stephon Diggs, great addition. Very much worth the, the you know the first round picks, uh, the money he costs, all that great stuff. All right, the Bills' offense is taking a jump forward. Are there some questions about the depth on that team? You know, John Brown's hurt for a little while. You know, Zach Moss is down. If Devin Singletary gets hurt, you know, what's the offensive line situation if some of those guys get dinged up or whatever? Yeah, okay, whatever. Everybody has trouble if some of their star players go down on offense. But the Bills' defense is fascinating to me. You know, they were third in yards allowed last year at the end of the season. All right, the Bills were third in the NFL in yards allowed last year. They had a really good defense. That team was built primarily on their defense shutting people down and Josh Allen being you know, dynamic enough with his legs and the ability to throw the ball. And, you know, they made it work. And their defense played pretty well in that playoff game. And then Josh Allen kind of fell apart and the defense just couldn't you know, pitch a perfect game, so to speak, against Deshaun Watson and the Texans' offense, and they lose that playoff game. Well, through three games this year, you know where the Bills are in yards allowed? In yards allowed, total yards allowed, the Bills are 21st in the NFL. 21st in the NFL. Now, yards allowed isn't everything. Okay, it's a it's very imperfect stat, and when you score a bunch more, the other team gets more possessions, and so they definitely have an opportunity to gain more yards against your defense. But what if I told you the Bills have allowed more yards than the following teams? I think every one of these teams that I name, you would be a little surprised that the Bills have allowed more yards than them. The Broncos, the Jets, the Jaguars the Giants, the Browns, the Cardinals, the Washington football team. I'm surprised that the Bills, who have played Miami, the Jets, and the Rams, are not better than 21st overall in yards allowed. Now, plenty of time to figure this thing out, and if the offense is going to take that much of a jump, they don't have to be third overall again. But I got a sneaky suspicion that the way Josh Allen plays, which is very much a reckless, you know, endangerment of the football style, okay, with the pitches and the interceptions and the fumbles and things like that, the way he plays... And the way he seemingly could play after the league catches up to this new version of him, they're going to need to slow down a couple of these offenses that they play against. And they don't have a home field advantage right now. We know Buffalo's been a kind of a tough place to play at different times. Rabid fan base, loud fan base. None of that in 2020. They're going to have to figure it out. I don't believe the Bills are nearly as good as some people believe them to be through the first three weeks if this defense is going to stay this way. 
21st overall, I don't have, like, I can throw an arbitrary number that they need to get to. All I know is they can't be happy with their defensive performance through three weeks, despite the fact that they're over the moon with their offensive performance through three weeks. Yet another Stutzcast in the books today. I appreciate you listening. If you're still listening to this, certainly appreciate all the shares, the feedback, the comments on social media, at Cody underscore Stutz on Twitter. If you've rated or reviewed the podcast on Apple Podcasts, I definitely appreciate that as well. Mostly, I just appreciate you listening. If you've listened to half of it, a third of it, three-fourths of it, all of it, I appreciate you And I appreciate that I have the opportunity to do it again this week for you here on the Suitscast. Suitscast.